Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd love to potentially have you alongside us on the programme. I'm really pleased to say that joining me on today's show on what is a warm sunny morning here in the capital is Julianne Sturzel. Julianne is the UK and Ireland Vice President at Coach Hub, a leading global talent development platform which enables organisations to create a personalised, measurable and scalable coaching programme for their workforce. Uh, Julianne, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks Scott, thank you and a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, likewise. Certainly is a lovely day for it um, as well. Uh, now, Julianne, um, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we need to talk about that because it is the context in which we're having this conversation. And even though social restrictions have been lifted in England, um, we've seen a huge impact from the crisis over the last 16 months, ever since it first started taking its toll on our day-to-day lives. Um, part of those changes are huge working practices changes that have come about out of necessity. And that's mainly come through sort of embracing technological solutions for nearly every single business process. Um, now, eventually, we are hopefully going to see restrictions going in the wider world as well. And the question that we're facing is, are we going to see a return to the status quo pre-pandemic or a new sort of blended or work from home emphasized work, um, sort of approach? Uh, for those who are looking to actually revert to pre-pandemic norms and have people back in offices, back in workplaces, do you think they're perhaps missing an opportunity to resolve a long-standing problem, especially for large businesses, and that's to sort of help manage the long-term well-being and happiness of their staff members? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, and I actually believe that it's a question that many companies are um, facing right now and trying to uh, solve. So I think even before the pandemic, it was evident that uh, there's been a challenge, really, uh, when it comes to well-being of staff and really ensuring that everybody, um, you know, is feeling supported in their roles. I, I think that the pandemic has really accelerated that that need, actually, and um, has also given people the opportunity to reflect on what's important to them, and well-being really is an important factor. And I think it's something that... Um, you know, many employers have um, have underestimated, and I think the importance of that is now really, um, you know, uh, coming to show, if you like, because uh, it's such an important topic when it comes to, you know, staff happiness. Uh, but also, you know, on top of that, it's, it's important to retaining uh, staff and having a happy and productive workforce. So I think anybody looking to return to, to the pre-pandemic situation will um, find, uh, find a struggle in, in doing that because, um, you know, things have changed, and I think the outlook and people's, um, you know, uh, sort of view on work uh, and their work-life balance has changed as well. Mm. And even though people have talked about sort of remote working benefiting that work-life balance, it does come with its pitfalls, doesn't it, that we do have to be aware of. Um, a third of women and a quarter of men in the UK especially have admitted to experiencing loneliness during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Global Happiness Council estimates that productivity can actually go up by around about 10% when there is a meaningful increase in well-being. 
And given that we are sort of social creatures as human beings, we thrive in communities and collaborative teams and tend to produce a great deal more. So now it's about sort of finding a balance, if anything, within business, isn't it? Yeah, I think there is. And I think, you know, the topic of loneliness has been one that has been, um, you know, on the agenda for a number of years now. But again, I think uh, it has dramatically, uh, you know, worsened over the last uh, year and a half uh, when faced with the pandemic, particularly for women, actually. So we've seen that uh, women in particular have uh, had additional responsibilities when it comes to childcare and also, mm. um, you know, uh, taking on a lot more work outside of the, uh, the paid work, if you like. So I think uh, loneliness, um, you know, is, is an important topic, but it's not something that people talk about or feel comfortable talking about in many cases. So I think there's more openness right now to actually discuss loneliness and to actually see it as something that is uh, quite common, actually. But again, there will still be many, many people who will feel uncomfortable speaking uh, to their co-workers or even to their managers about that. And I think that's something that is um, underestimated uh, a lot. Yeah, I can certainly see why um, sort of you go down that line of thought because it is difficult, isn't it, when you're working remotely as well to sort of really have that ability of speaking up, isn't it? And for the business leaders as well, it's hard to detect certain well-being issues and social cues because when you're sort of in an office together and you can see someone's behaviour, mannerisms and demeanour, you can tell when something's perhaps not quite right, whereas spotting that in the tone of an email or the way that they're behaving over, say, a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams call, that's a little bit different, isn't it? So it presents a new challenge for leaders in business to really detect where there are problems in well-being when we're living in this sort of virtual world. Yeah, exactly. I think we have to, you know, really um, have... Uh, an additional focus on making sure that people are okay. It is very difficult to actually check in on people in a remote environment because you miss a lot of these cues that you would see, uh, you know, looking at somebody in an office perhaps or in a, in a face-to-face meeting. So I think this is something that, um, again, is, is a challenge that many businesses have faced, but it is something that can be solved, right, by actually, um, you know, checking in on them and making sure they're okay and asking these questions and having these conversations that perhaps, you know, wouldn't have had or wouldn't have happened um, a year or two ago where you're actually checking in with people to make sure they're okay. It shifted significantly from just, you know, the focus on work to now having a focus on, you know, making sure people are okay. And especially, you know, considering what has happened in the past year, uh, year and a half, you know, many people have, um, you know, had a very tough time. And um, again, just making sure that people are fine and um, feel supported is, is very important. So when we think about how large corporate entities can change that focus to put well-being as the priority, um, some of the changes that can be made must include sort of a change in culture, mustn't it? Because building sort of a strong and authentic company culture of safety, let's say, I think that's central, isn't it, to ensuring employee well-being to start with? Yeah, and I think uh, specifically in large companies, you know, it's very easy to feel like you're, you're part of the sort of bigger picture, but perhaps there's not as much as a focus of the, on the individual. Mm. And that's something whereby it's just increasingly important to really define company values, but not just to define them, but to actually implement them. And I think that's the step that, again, takes a lot more effort than, you know, the first step of actually defining them, because when it comes to actually living company values, that's something that has to 
be lit, have to be lit by managers and have to be lit by employees to actually create that, you know, uh, safe space, for example, to communicate. Um, but that's something that, again, um, isn't a quick fix. That's something that is a long-term behavioral change in many cases. Um, and it takes people um, a lot of practice, right, to actually implement that change, specifically when they've been doing something for, you know, a long period of time. Driving behavioral change is very tricky, but it's something that will benefit a lot of organizations. Absolutely right. And where there are situations where remote working is of course, possible or even unavoidable. I think companies have got to really look at setting firm boundaries on the work-life balance as well, haven't they? Because as much as we've heard a lot of the benefits over the last year of working flexibly, there are some risks when it comes to sort of blurring the line between home life and work life, because even though we may have cut down on that time commuting into the office in a morning, we're not actually taking that time back out for ourselves as individuals, are we? That's being given back to work and back to meetings um, virtually. So like, we need to obviously make sure that that downtime is still being taken and that those boundaries are clearly set. So that's another issue around well-being that I think is going to be especially important, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So... Um, what we've seen is that many employees use that time that perhaps they would have spent commuting to then be more uh, supposedly effective or productive at work by using that time to um, perhaps uh, you know do that extra meeting or write that extra email. But actually, um, you know, the, the point is that we need to be careful about uh, not blurring these lines between uh, work life and home life, particularly when we're now having so many people work remotely uh, and not in an office environment. Um, it's a little different actually going somewhere to a physical place uh, and then leaving that um, when you compare that to actually opening up a laptop uh, at your desk at home or maybe in the kitchen, uh, writing a couple of emails and um, uh, doing a few meetings and then actually knowing when to stop because uh, that's, that's something that I think many employees struggle with and, and something that we have to learn. But again, it's something where my managers can really also make a difference to, again, um, and define what the what the expectations are um, and define the new normal to make sure that everybody's okay and everybody takes care of themselves. Yes, exactly. And there is, of course, plenty of research as well to suggest that sort of increased exposure to technology, sort of excessive amounts of time at a computer screen and on the internet, it's one of the drivers behind sort of mental health issues and the buildup of stress. But technology can provide a solution for us, can't it, in this new sort of post-COVID age, because coaching um, our staff to sort of recognize these situations and be able to reduce stress, anxiety, and depression, these are all really important aspects. And we can also deliver that virtually, can't we? So we can almost use technology as a solution to really sort of help people, you know, set those boundaries between work and home life balance and really sort of cash in on that well-being. Yeah, that's right. And um, many uh, employers are now discovering coaching as a preventative measure to really uh, encourage their employees to, um, you know, not overwork, but also the preventative measure to reduce stress, uh, right, and anxiety. Because, um, again, there's, uh, there's so many um, people out there who are facing these issues but who may not feel comfortable talking to uh, perhaps their direct line manager about that because that may be seen as um, a way of um, admitting a weakness, if you like, and perhaps, you know, saying that you're not that person who is really um, delivering an optimal performance. And that can be a difficult conversation. So coaching is really a tool that enables companies to 
uh, have an unbiased support for somebody um, who may be facing challenges but may, may not be comfortable in actually discussing these challenges with somebody at work, whereby coaching is really something that can activate uh, an employee's resources and make sure that they're you know, happy and feel supportive and can have these conversations with somebody who is who's essentially on their side. Exactly right. And that's something at Coach Hub that you're certainly working on, isn't it? Bringing in those scalable coaching programs for workforces moving forward from here. And so before we do wrap things up on the program, Julian, I do want to talk about the uh, the future, like the immediate future, because we're still sort of in a bit of a battle against COVID. We're still adjusting in some ways to what the new normal of the workplace is going to look like. So what are some of Coach Hub's priorities going to be over the next 12 months as we bid to recover from the pandemic, but also tackle these well-being issues and ready business for what the workplace of the future is going to be? Yeah, so I think uh, it's going to be important for uh, companies to come up with a long-term plan, right, and a strategy to actually um, find and define the new normal and make sure that, again, everybody's supported. And, and that's not something that can be a quick fix. Right. It's something that uh, needs a strategic approach and a plan, really, to make sure that uh, you have uh, a level of support uh, in place, actually, to make sure that you uh, retain your staff and that your staff are happy. And that's, um, that's uh, where we come in as well and support many organizations to actually define what that could look like, whether that's in the form of a um, specific program or whether that's um, opening up coaching to all employees, for example. Um, or having those, um, you know, register their interest to feel that they might need some support. So um, it's something that, again, uh, I think would benefit many companies to actually have that tool to actually implement their their ideas that they have, uh, but then to actually uh, make sure that, again, everybody feels supported and everybody is, um, you know, happy and, uh, you know, preparing for what will be the uh, post-pandemic world. Mm. And it's so important, isn't it, for the retention of talent and attracting talent now, isn't it, just as a last point, because employees' expectations of the businesses they work for, their employers, it's changed as a result of the COVID-19 situation. So if somebody is going for a job interview and they realize that this business isn't one that prioritizes coaching and well-being and prioritizes me and values me, then like, why should I work here? So business really does have to be sort of clued into this new situation and has to respond. And this is one of the ways that it can go about doing that. Exactly. And you actually touched on a key point because there's been that real shift uh, specifically from the millennial generation onwards about employees having a different expectation to their uh, employer, right? It used to be about uh, having the highest salary, uh, but now it's really about actually looking for an employer who will invest in them and invest in their own growth and personal development. And if you don't offer that, then um, you miss out on that new generation that values that so much and a lot of talent as well. If I look at you know the amount that the, the workforce that, that millennial generations are making, it's, it's huge, significant, and it's growing, right? And then we have, um, again, the new generation after that as well to follow. So I think it's, it's a good time now to actually reassess and to look at how we're supporting workers and, um, you know, not just pushing people to work the most amount of hours, um, but actually to make sure that everybody is, um, you know, functioning at the optimal performance, but really to activate that talent as well that you have and to make sure that uh, we're developing and investing in that. And I think those companies that invest in uh, developing their talent are the companies that will thrive in the future. 
Exactly right. It's changing times, isn't it? And business leaders really, really do have to take heed if they're going to sort of run successful um, enterprises in the future. And it's a shame that we're just about out of time, actually, on the show today, Julianne, because I could really talk about this issue all day. It's so, so, so important. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion that we've had. But as we actually understand more how business is responding to sort of these changing requirements and the need for sort of prioritizing well-being and the need for coaching in the part that it's going to play in that. I would love actually to have the opportunity to perhaps welcome you back onto the program in the next sort of six to 12 months, just to see sort of how things are changing, discuss some of the things that you've seen at Coach Hub and just catch up on how things are getting on as well. That would be fantastic. I would love to do that. Yes, I'd certainly love to revisit the uh, the situation, Julianne. But um, until we do hopefully have an opportunity to speak again in future, uh, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with COVID yet, but, I think better days will be ahead of us before too long. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, all the best to you and take care. It was a pleasure welcoming Julianne Sturzel, UK and Ireland Vice President at Coach Hub, onto today's programme. And I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett, the Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 16 months with the COVID-19 situation and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead as we hopefully enter a period of economic recovery with the lifting of social restrictions. And that will be coming up on the programme shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think they'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging and um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.